0: Following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com.
1: Everyone, we'll be reading from Philippians chapter two, verses one through eighteen. And if you need a Bible, they're under the uh, the Lord's table tables on the sides. even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. God bless the reading of his word feel
0: like with, the, with it being a snow day that this would probably be best suited conversation for us to be at somebody's home that has a very large fireplace. All of you having your hot drinks or soup in your hand and us sitting down and having a longer conversation about this particular text. And so part of what I'm hoping is, is that whether you being here today or your members of your growth communities and those of you that haven't gotten in one, we can help you do that little sidebar for that, but the desire is, is that we do take some time to reread this in a group of people. I'm going to share some thoughts on this today and then take us to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in just a moment and spend a little bit of time there, but there is too much in this for us to just have enjoyed that letter that Paul wrote. When Paul was writing this to the early church, you can read in it that this was a letter that he was feeling highly connected to these people. It wasn't just a lecture, a disconnect, like he was giving something to the people so that they could then in turn study it and then get a grade at the end of the semester to see if they passed. This felt like life. I don't know if it, if it felt that way with you as we were reading through it, but there's so much of this particular passage that just felt like it was loving. Did, that, did, you, did you feel it that same way? There's also some deep truths in this. Um, and I put a plural S on that. Obviously, we know it's about Jesus, so he's capital T truth. But then when we get to know Jesus, then we get to know what truth then looks like. So there's a plurality of ways that that's been expressed. And so, um, let me, before we get back into Philippians 2, let me just remind you of where we've been. Our Advent candles are still lit. Why is that? I just like to break traditions, don't I? Right? I'm just a rebel pastor that wants to do whatever we want to do, right? No, no. Okay. Are you guys, is the a bunch here today, or did they stay home? Um, all right. So here's what, why is the Advent candle still um, burning? It's always Advent. It's always Advent. That's who we are. All right? So we're going to try through this visual illustration up till Easter or until the candles burn the tags, um, is that we're going to try to keep them lit. Because we need a way to remember where we are. If you remember during Advent when we started that series, the first Sunday we talked about Advent, we talked about the fact that it doesn't do you any good in a map or in a mall or in uh, the woods if you don't know where you are. right? If you don't know where you are, you can't get anywhere. right? Can, can I get a couple of nods? Are, are you, all of you geographically challenged? You have no idea what that illustration means? Right, But if you don't know your point of origin, why else do they at the mall put a little circle that says you are here? Because if you don't know where you are, you won't find where you're going. And we in our faith are where? In the waiting. We're, we're Advent people. We're in between the ascension of Jesus and his return. And so we can know everything there is about the life of Christ after he comes back and we can know everything about jesus before jesus died on the cross and rose again but if we don't know what we are doing in between we'll be highly confused and very frustrated because we're not living prior to the death burial and resurrection and we're not living in the time after jesus has come back and so if we hold those promises like as if that's the way our life is supposed to be right now we're going to be like wait a minute why isn't life easy why isn't Jesus Lord of all? Because there are people that are in our lives right now where Jesus is not Lord, and don't elbow them, okay? it's like that's, that's, that's where we are right now. So if you and I are going to gain confidence in our faith, I think it's going to be really important that we know who we are in Christ, but yet also know exactly where we are. And so we're leaving these candles lit. But we also talked at the end of Advent, there's this word of love that we talk about because obviously Jesus is, according to John, who leaned against Jesus at the Lord's table when the first Lord's Supper was taken, who had a chance to abandon Jesus at the cross and had a chance to see Jesus cooking fish for him on the beach and then had Jesus show up in a prayer room where the door was locked. This same John said in one word, Jesus is love. All caps, right? I mean, you could just imagine John talking about Jesus like as if every word is all caps all the time. And it was always exuding love because that's who John came to know in the forgiveness and the love and the expression of Jesus Christ. And so when we were talking about this word and the Advent, we asked ourselves a question. Do you guys remember the question? What does require of me? What does love require of me? Now, when you are by yourself, and you ask a question, generally there's usually two things that are either going on. One, you're either talking to yourself, which is what a lot of us probably are really good at doing, or we're actually doing what? Praying. Now there's a huge difference between us talking to ourselves and actually praying. Now I could say in the mirror, what does love require of you? And that might be a profitable conversation, but... I would probably say that the best conversation I could have would be on a snowy day like today, in the peacefulness of it, saying to my Father in heaven, Father, what does love require of me? I feel like there's so much more power when we push our attention towards the Lord. And that's why prayer is such a valuable part of our everyday. We can't just pray at a set time of morning, noon, and night, and we can't just pray at our meals. um, we need to have a moment where we're praying throughout the day. That's why I feel like Paul, when he was writing churches like this, said you need to pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying. Because when you look at Philippians 2, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. How are we going to win in that simple charge if we're not talking to God? Because the majority and the loudest voice in my life, can I just tell you this, is my selfish voice. That's the voice that I hear first on many occasions. Now on days where I'm walking in success, it's probably been because I have started a conversation with my Father in Heaven, and I've maintained my conversation with my Father in Heaven, but I haven't abandoned the conversation. And so if I'm not careful... I will just talk to myself, and then I will only hear my own voice telling me what to do. And on many occasions, that's going to put me before you, right? Because that's our default, and that's part of the reason why Jesus had to come. But not looking at my own interests, but upon the interests of others. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. And the only way you and I are going to have that same mindset is if we learn to ask him questions. Father, right now, my roommate is under my skin. What does love require of me? Or, Father, right now, I want to change jobs. What does love require of me? Father, right now, I am frustrated by, but what does love require of me? And if we can turn it into conversations, I feel like we'll have so much more. And then the last Sunday in December, this gap between the end of the year and New Year's and the 12 people that were here that Sunday heard this in person, and I hope many of you podcasted it but we actually said that there's a description of the between people. I'm going to refer to it that way. Like the people that were living when the Scriptures, the New Testament was being written, are part of this between people. And after Jesus' resurrection, what did they add to his name? Lord. So it went before the cross, Jesus, Jesus, Rabbi, teacher. After the resurrection, it was adamant, Lord Jesus Christ. And anytime they referenced him moving forward after the resurrection, it was no longer just Jesus Christ. Sometimes they'd say Jesus Christ our Lord, right? So I don't want you to say, Well, Ellis, I found a verse where Lord came later, all right? Yes, I concede. But yet the thing was is they they stopped talking about him as just Jesus Christ. They no longer called him just, hey, the good teacher, the rabbi, or what anybody else was describing him as. And I, and I shared that with us because there's, that's one component that I feel like has become a stumbling block for where we are in our faith. Because we're OK with Jesus being a good teacher, we're OK with him giving us salvation, we're OK with him dying for our sins, we're OK with him giving us the Sermon on the Mount and learning to love our enemies. But to actually say, "Jesus is Lord," or "The Lord Jesus Christ," we are giving him ultimate what? authority in our life. That means, if he is truly Lord, my opinion doesn't matter. If he's truly Lord, what I want to do with what I have is no longer important, right? I mean, and a lot of us, because of the abuse of the way humans have abused power, we are so distrustful. Or um, Jesus, we, we fear being able to say Jesus has full authority because we've seen people abuse authority. But here's the thing, Jesus has never abused authority. And that's what Philippians 2 is all about. This whole passage that we just read is, is where we wanted to start. And so last week, I shared with you guys something I want to revisit very quickly, 1 Peter 3.15. And I shared a summary of it with you. This is my summary of it. Always be prepared to provide an explanation to everyone who asks you to explain why you've chosen to put your hope in Christ and to make him your Lord. So what we're doing in 2018-19... We just had a year, all right? 2019, between now and Easter, I want to join in the calling of Peter and just say to us as a church, I want us to grow in confidence to share an explanation. I don't want any of you to live in fear of saying, Lord Jesus Christ, and let me tell you why. You don't have to convince the other people. You just need to be prepared to give an explanation of why you have hope. The, the conviction and the power we'll talk about in, some, in coming weeks has a lot to do more with the Holy Spirit in the person's life than about how quality of a communicator you are. We just have to be prepared to say, let me tell you why I believe in Jesus, why I put my hope in his basket, right? That's what we need to be able to do. And so in process of sharing that with you, I, I, I want to begin to framework a way for us to understand the scriptures better. That's why there's 66 books on the table here. We've divided 39 of them up to represent what? Old Testament. And do you guys remember what I told you I'd like to call this Old Testament now? The Hebrew Scriptures or the Jewish Bible or whatever, because that's where the, the, the Scriptures came from. And then these 27 books then represent what? The New Testament, which totals how many? 66, right? So there's 66 books that represent the library that we call the Bible, right? Do you guys realize the Bible is a library, not just a book? Does this help you visualize it a little bit better? That even though we package it as a book or we put it in an iPad form, we can now see it that it's a library? And do any of you remember why I moved the New Testament in front of the Old Testament last week? Because where do we have to start? Jesus. So if we start at Jesus, it's important that we know where we're going. And then I even encouraged us last week to look at the Gospel of Luke as potentially one of the first books we take our friends to because the letter starts out with i know you have questions i've done great investigative work to share with you why i believe in jesus now let me unfold that investigative work to you that's how luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 starts with luke's dear friend theophilus and so for us i'm like you know what we've got to start with jesus then we can get into the old testament we can begin to make sense of what it is there. And in, in in a couple of things I put down, I love this out of Psalms chapter 102, verse 8. I think it's on the screen for you. This is so true. When this, when this psalmist was writing this, he wasn't just penning a journal. He wasn't just sitting at a desk writing something, thinking that this is just my prayer to God. Listen to what he says here. This, Let this be written for a future generation, that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. And there is so much in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, as well as in the New Testament written to the early church that's written to us is that we can glean from is that there were people that sat with God, that God used them to write some things down that are highly profitable for you and me. And we have got to develop a heart to want to understand it. And therefore, like any library, if you don't know how to go and, and navigate the library, you can get really confused, you can get really discouraged, or you can be really built up. That's why I believe Paul was saying this to Timothy, verse, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, talking about the 39 books uh, that we refer to as the Old Testament or the Jewish scriptures. He says this, All scripture is God-breathed and is youthful, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul, even to the Romans in Romans 15, says, For even Christ did not please himself, which is what we're talking about in Philippians 2, but as it was written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So he's quoting from Psalm 69, 9, talking about what Jesus did on the cross and helping that early church to realize, you know how you're being highly insulted right now? You know how some of your friends outside of the Colosseum are being lit on fire on stakes? to light the night, you know how those insults and that persecution, it's falling on Jesus. He's reminding them in the midst of this brutal world that they lived in, that even Christ himself was a representation of the truth that's found here. He says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures, the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So, if you and I are able to pace ourselves, we can go through these 66 letters written, old and new, and find what? One word, starts with an H. Hope. That's what Paul was saying to the church in Rome. In a time where they were literally being lit on fire for their faith in Jesus Christ. So, with that, I want to come back to philippians 2 and in philippians 2 i want you to see something we don't have for the sake of time i'm not going to reread the whole chapter or the whole 18 verses because i want you to do this i want you to go back but a couple of things stood out to me here in verse 12 he says continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling can i tell you guys this is what i'm trying to do right now with us is i want us to not just be content with our salvation. Like, I am so happy my sins are forgiven and I'm eternally secure. I don't want us just to live in a place of I'm satisfied with the fact that I'm forgiven. I want there to be some holy ambition as in-between people to what we do with our life until Jesus comes back. And so therefore, Paul, in motivating the early church, was saying that just because you know Jesus, you've got to let him complete a work in you you've got to work with him to wrestle in your life and sit in front of him. So, And i say not saying him, Paul, or him, me. I'm saying sit in front of the Holy Father in heaven that sent us the Lord Jesus Christ, that gives us the power of the Spirit to do a work in us through prayer. We sit with him saying, Father, Pastor Ellis is talking really fast, and I'm learning all these scriptures, and now what do I do? Like, It it could be a recipe that the Holy Spirit can get involved in it in your life and do something incredible. This is what was going on. But in verse 5, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. So, what was the same mindset? I put three words on a slide for you. So, I want you to see just three quick things that jumped out to me Jesus had position. Jesus had privilege, and Jesus had provisions, and he used all of the power associated in it for himself, right? No. He was in heaven at the right hand of the Father. It's good there. It's right. There's some beautiful angelic singers, right? They have the best wings. The, and I'm implying food, not Victoria's Secret. All right. Uh, so the, I know. But I want you guys to hear me when I say this. Jesus was in the best place. He was perfect. <laughs> I might need to give Bob a microphone right now. It might be really good for us and our laughter and our soul. Um, but there's, there's so much that I want you guys that we can't even fathom how good Jesus had it. We can't fathom the power, the wealth. Where he was when he spoke, things were created. Like we are living in a place when Jesus spoke from where he was, we now breathe and move and produce and have families and homes and rivers and streams and snowfalls because Jesus spoke it from where he was. All of that came from where he was. But he left all of that for whom? Us. Everything he had at his disposal, he looked at his father and his father said, Son, let's go pour it out. Didn't hold any of it back didn't keep any of it for himself, all the way to what Paul says is that even the obedience to the death on the cross. Like even in that very last moment, even in the moment where Jesus was still proving that that he was a human creation because he actually in the garden said to his father, if it's your will, would you let this cup pass for me? Is there another way? Would you please reveal it right now? But if not, your will be done. So let me just tell you, there is a modeled prayer life in the midst of our pouring out for other people that Jesus modeled where it is okay for us at the very last second to say, God, I'm about ready to walk into this house. And if I walk into this house, it's going to cost me a lot. But if it's what you want, I will go in. That means it might be the roommate across the hall. It might be your neighbor. It could be the bedroom across the hallways from yours. It, It could be anywhere. It could be a family member in another state. That you were just like, Father, if I pursue peace and hope and love and exercise my faith it, faith, it is going to cost me a lot. But yet Jesus set that as an example because he modeled selflessness in a world that has been modeling selfishness. And so with that, let me jump to Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 because one of the things that we need to be able to do is to lavish one another, which is why I entitled this this particular message, lavishing one another, because I feel like this is what Jesus did for us. And I want to run through a story that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul brings a church from another region into an example so that that church can be encouraged to do the right thing. Because if there's one area where it's become very confusing in our lives, it is in the area of our personal finances. It is difficult. There have been so many churches. Like even last night, I was sitting waiting for my son's hockey game to start, and rumor has now gotten out amongst the team that I'm a pastor, and so therefore nobody really wants to sit with us during the game, Um, which we're kind of used to that. But then there was a family last night that finally got up enough nerve to sit next to me um, in the waiting area while the Zamboni was getting the ice prepped for the game. And they just sat next to me, and they just said, um, what kind of denomination is your church? And then my wife's like, you've got to simplify the answer. And I'm like, well, technically, we're like non-denominational, but yet what we really want to do is bridge people that believe in Jesus together. And if you are okay with Jesus, you'll probably feel okay at our church. And they're like, okay, that's interesting. We're Catholic. I'm like, great, you believe in Jesus. You'd feel comfortable at our church. And so they started to ask questions, but what I began to find out was is that what was the first thing that they compared people like me to? Pastors that fly in private jets and Rolls Royces and have chauffeurs. Um, so let me just tell you guys this. I don't have those. <laughs> um, and, but I thought it was so funny. Stereotypes. This is the first time they've talked to me about church and the first thing they said to me had to do with money. And let me just tell you, what is the motivation why a lot of people don't trust churches? Money. They're going to ask me to give too much or whatever. And so people are like, okay, well... uh, and, And so I said to them, I said, let me just help you understand something. There are a minuscule number of ministers in the continental United States that have personal jets. That was my answer. I said, there is a pastor in Baltimore that has a $100,000 car and a chauffeur, but I only know of one in the city of Baltimore. But I could give you the names of dozens of pastors that live in communities that are trying to make a difference, and they are not living a lavish lifestyle. And I said, so are you interested in me helping you find one of those? Oh, no, 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 we're okay with our Catholic church. And I said, well, that's great, but you need to leverage yourself in that. So I just want to wave a banner up here and say, anytime you mention money, it is painful because there has been so much abuse of it. But let me just tell you this. If we read in Acts and in the letters that Paul wrote, that John wrote, and that Peter wrote, there was a resounding theme about the definition of the life of the people listening to them. And it was this, rich and poor, multiple ethnicities, and there wasn't a need found amongst them. That you will read in all of the scriptures about the way that the desire was always that the people of God would be a generous people where even the poor and, and immigrant could take refuge. Like right now, in the debates around our country politically, there are tons of scripture verses being thrown out about the care of the poor and the immigrant. Let me tell you something. The church should excel But that means that we can't just have a theology of excellence. We have to do it. There are people in our own church family that have needs, that we're trying to meet. So let me just be real with you, and this is probably something I should just share with our covenant family. But in the last year, like in the calendar year 2018, There were three families that attended our church. One of them had to move for work and two of them left because they thought that we were too much of a social gospel church, which meant that we were too much focused on the people that were hurting and oppressed and that we weren't really doing an effective job of ministering. And in those three families, we lost $100,000 a year in giving to our local church. But right now we're only $35,000 behind where we were last year at this time. So you guys are stepping up and giving. But can you see how just a few people put the, put the burden, like how they carry a large burden of the work and the ministry? But could you imagine what it would look like if the rest of us just gave faithfully what the Lord had laid on our heart to give? Now again, people are like, well, is it a 10% or can I start with two and work to 10 and all this? Let me just say this. What is Jesus asking of us? Because the testimony in in 2 Corinthians, listen to this, chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, he's talking about Macedonia, in the midst of their severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity for i testify that they gave as much as they were able even beyond their ability entirely on their own like they weren't being like persecuted to give there wasn't like an abusive pastor asking for his third jet that was at pressuring them to give they were doing it on their own they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the lord's people And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Talking to the Corinthians. The grace that was seen in Macedonia, Titus has now been in charge of teaching them to be that same type of people. But then listen to what he says, Paul talking to the Corinthian church. But since you excel in everything, listen to that, you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. So I just want you to know, it was an issue in the early church, just as much as it is an issue in our church um, and, but we, we need to continue to say, all right, well, what did the pastor teach? No, they gave themselves to the Lord first and said, Lord, what do you want us to do with our lives? Meaning everything, my time, my resources, everything. What do you want? And that's all that I want to say for us as a church this year. Could you sit with your computer open and your bank open and just say, Father, this is my finances? Have another screen open with your calendar saying, God, this is my time. And then humbly, with a document open, Father, this is all the talents you've given me. Some of you would have a hard time doing that. Others of you would fill up 10 pages, right? It's just different personalities. But in all honest, honesty, it's like, Father, what does your love now require of me based upon this spreadsheet of my life? What are you asking of me? What do you want me to do? I had the privilege of sitting with some extremely wealthy individuals for a little while this summer. And one of the statements I made to them in talking about the riots that had taken place and helping them to helping explain what that would have been like here in Baltimore and how that uprising and all that was nationally broadcast and then also talked about here locally and we talked about the needs of the children in our city and I, and I said I said what would it look like for each of us in this room to just take half of one paycheck and throw it into a pot and then do good with it does that not sound exciting like, what would it take for us just to take, do you know how many takers in that room I got out of that invitation? Zero. Because half of my paycheck is pretty doable, right, in most people's minds. Like, I, like I, could, I could sure if I would have said, hey, guys, half of my paycheck is X, Y, Z. Um, how many of you like to match that? That would have been easy. But when your paycheck has six digits in it or has two commas, Half is a big deal, right? But is it? Here's the thing, is we always want other people to do what's right by it, but let me just tell you this. I still tried to recede the challenge because, let me just try to be honest with you, there was half of a paycheck that was given, but it was of the smallest paycheck in the room. And I'm just saying, like, The Macedonian church was being praised for their excellence in giving. And it says in verse 10, And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give but also to have the desire to do so. Can I just say this? uh, When I talk about you guys, I talk about you with great pride. Because when I look at your faces and I know your stories and I know the sacrifice that many of you are making, I love telling your stories. I love talking about this. I took a picture of some of you walking through the courtyard that will be posted later because I'm going to talk about the fact that our people walked to church this morning and it was great in the snow because I'm proud of your efforts and your diligence to want to come and pursue Christ. But it goes on in verse 11, Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. According to your means, match your desire so that we can complete the work. There's a needs board on the wall that we can't meet right now for certain people. There's been a lot of them that have come off that wall that I'm thankful for. But there are other people that have not yet gotten up the courage to even post their need. Some email them in. But let me just tell you this. I think we can do better. I think we can help more people inside of our own church, let alone the people that we can invite in, because they're like, wow, you guys really do love each other. You really are caring for one another. It goes on in 2 Corinthians 9. He's now turned the corner. He's already told them, look, I'm going to tell you how I'm going to come get your offering in Corinth. And then he says in verse 1, There is no need for me to write you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that, that since last year you and Achai were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them into action. So there were now people giving somewhere else because of the testimony of your church. And let me just tell you this. There are people in other states that are now giving, especially to Urban Works, because of you. Because I've had a chance to tell your story. There are now other pastors and other churches that are encouraged by the work that God has been doing here. And you're not aware of that, but I'm here to tell you it's happened. It's happened. I even got a phone call two weeks ago from a man that says, we're we're modeling a lot of what we're doing in our new work and our flow of the church based upon what we've seen and continue to see in your people. So I just want to tell you guys, praise the Lord for that testimony. But then it goes on to say this in verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge you, brothers, to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift that you had promised Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Do you guys hear the repetition of this? It's joy, not begrudgingly. It's out of a sense of peace, not a sense of, man, how much is enough? It is a sense that I know that I'm doing what God wants me to do, so it's nothing but pure joy. When you give your money away and you give your time away and you give your talents away and you don't know why you're doing it, it's begrudgingly given most of the time. But when you give it all away and you know why you're giving it away, there's no reason for you not to be jumping and skipping and full of pure joy because you know that you've leveraged yourself with purpose. And this is what was happening in the early church. Verse 6, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. It doesn't say each of you should give 10%. He doesn't say each of you should give 5%. He doesn't say 25%. Do you guys realize that when these letters were being written, Rome was taxing them at nearly 60%? So they were already being taxed more than we can imagine. Not not far off here in Baltimore City, Right? We're not we're not too far off here in Baltimore City, right? Um but but yet even with the jokingness aside in that, um they were still being encouraged to give joyfully based upon what they had in prayer, made a decision to give. Now for some of you it might be simply saying, you know what? I'm not giving anything right now, and so I know I spend $25 a week at Starbucks. I'm going to spend $10 a week at Starbucks, and I'm going to give $15 a week now. And, or it might be whatever. It might, whatever you're doing is to say, Father, this is what I have. All of this money is already claimed by the government, and my rent, and my eating. Um, but yet this is what's left over. What should I do with it? Because at the end of the day, if you pray based upon your resources, you're not giving out of your leftovers, you're asking God first. Is to say, Father, I'm thankful that I have income. I'm thankful that I have a life that is blessed. Uh, What do I do with it? How do I leverage that? Um, Because God loves a cheerful giver. At the very end, verse 15, this is what I I love of what he's done. This is what comes back to Philippians 2. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What was God's indescribable gift his son. What do we call him after the resurrection? Lord Jesus Christ. That is the indescribable gift that Paul is talking about in Philippians 2. A God that gave up all of his privilege, his power, his position, anything that he had power over somebody else, he gave it up to be the servant of all so that we could be free and and be able to walk in salvation and call him Lord. And there are other people that, that need to be able to do the same. And I love that in the passages that I've read to you. Paul was talking to both the rich and the poor. He wasn't talking just to the rich, and he wasn't just talking to the poor. If you've been around Baltimore long enough and in our church family or been through an essentials class, you'll know that when we were praying about coming to Baltimore in 2007, early 2007, I had a friend of a friend that got me in touch with a pastor in a southern state, And I sat in that pastor's office and he was listening to our story and he was hearing about whether or not their church was going to financially support us as missionaries coming to Baltimore. And he said this to me that irked me. And Albert was with me and Albert knew I was about ready to blow a gasket and didn't want to have a scene. Actually, we had transitioned from his office to a restaurant, so it was in public now. He actually said to me, well, you need to change your strategy or something along that line because the gospel of Jesus Christ was meant to go from the rich to the poor. Can you see why I got a little fired up? I mean, I honestly believe that Albert was upset too. And at the same time, we went to grab each other's thighs like spouses do to, <laughs> under the table to say, get it under control. And we ended up hitting hands in the middle and we're holding hands like, wait a minute, this is awkward, right? <laughs> but we were both about ready to just come unglued because the gospel of Jesus Christ was just meant to go. It's not meant to go in an economic way or to go in a social way or to go it's meant to go to anyone and everyone that we bump into because we are supposed to be prepared to give an explanation for the hope that we have on any occasion no matter who's asking us why we represent christ and so our ask today is is Have you sat with your resources, time, talents, finances, job, education, your intellect, and said, Father, you've blessed me with all of this. What do I now do with it? And then find the joy in using it and giving it away and laying it down so that other people can. I believe we can accomplish so much more in 2019 if we learn to pray and just say, Father, this is who I am and what I have. What do you want me to do with it? Let's pray.